I'm Jason Lewis. And I'm Todd Deshida. And I'm Thomas Mills. Welcome to Climate Optimus. As a couple concerned citizens, we're on a journey to explore climate solutions and ways each of us can make a difference. So before we dig in, I had a question from one of our listeners who hadn't been listening in a while when they heard Thomas Yu on the show while they enjoyed the episode with you, Thomas, there was a level of like consternation and worrying that maybe Todd was was gone. And so I thought we would just clarify that Todd is a reoccurring co-host and remains on Climate Optimus, and we're grateful for that. But that we're also grateful because Thomas, you have been able to come on and be a regular co-host as well and share with us your energy expertise. And so Todd is still here and Unless he wins the lottery, I don't think he's going anywhere. I do what I want. Here's, <laughs> <laughs> I got to ask you this question, just out of curiosity. Was the person who commented male or female? Female. Really? Because see, my wife gets all charged up about all the accents. So like when Thomas <laughs> comes on or you have guests on with accents, you know, I'm chopped liver on here to her. But when you get people with accents... <laughs> who know what they're talking about. She kind of gets excited about that. It does add credibility, doesn't it? I feel like... I think so. Take anything and you have somebody with a British accent or an Australian accent, you have them read it, and it's going to be more believable to me. Yeah, you and you've had a lot. You've had, you had Jochen on here. and That's true. We've had a German uh, accent. The guy from France. Well, I can't remember his name now all of a sudden. Um, oh, yeah. Axel. Yeah, yeah, from yeah. From France. There you yeah. go. This week... We're going to be looking into the topic of home energy efficiency, and it's kind of dual power to both avoid carbon emissions through saving energy and, you know, its ability to save us all money. So starting out, Todd, I thought I'd ask, how, how efficient is your home? I don't think it's that efficient, nope. and I don't really know exactly how efficient it is or isn't, and I probably need to to iron that out. It is, it's small, so... You know, well, that's it probably good. isn't terrible that way, but it's it's old. You know, it's a it's one of those nineteen twenty eight jobs that you know they kind of cobbled together, and it hasn't had a ton of I, I, what I would call updates. Right? I, it, we they did the windows, but they probably need to be redone. There's a bunch of stuff that probably needs to happen. You know, it's probably a fire hazard. Probably ready to burn get- down. <laughs> <laughs> Probably needs a big electrical update in bad ways. I think it's got some old knob and tube in it in some places. You know, it's an opportunity. It's it's a good topic then for today. You know, you can take notes. It's been around for a hundred years. I'll leave it for somebody else in the next hundred. <laughs> How about you, Thomas? How's your uh, your home there in in Australia? Um, well, I, I can put some numbers on it for you if you like, Jason. Uh, so it, it I, I use about five kilowatt hours of electricity electricity a day which is about 17,000 BTUs for those of you that still like the imperial measurement system I export about another 30 to 35 kilowatt hours of solar a day onto the grid um, so yeah I, I, I don't have battery storage so you know in the evenings I still have to draw off the grid but it, in total it uses about five kilowatt hours a day um, but that said it also uses a couple of tons of firewood a year um, because most of my heating comes from that. So <laughs> the electricity is just running the fridges and freezers and that sort of thing. But you're, you're in essence with the solar panels, you're a net exporter anyway of energy. By, by an order of, yeah, five times or more. Six. Of what I consume. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. 
that's what I need to do on my house when I do my roof. Because I, I have to do one at some point. I should just do solar panels when I do it, you know? Yeah. Just just yeah. make De- it happen. Definitely want to make sure you got that roof in good shape first. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, same here. We, we uh, at some point, should do solar. And I think, um, Todd, we're probably not, we're probably behind where you are. I think our windows desperately need to be replaced and definitely need some more more insulation. Yeah. Well, before we get further into energy efficiency, want to call out this week's reason for hope, which is which comes to us from from NPR, who reported today that a group of states and as well as some nonprofits are suing the U.S. Postal Service over its decision to invest in a new fleet of gas power trucks versus electric ones. And for those who maybe haven't followed the issue, basically there was hope that as the post office needs to update its aging fleet, that it would make the jump to electric. And unfortunately, the postmaster general decided that he wanted to continue having the postal service burn gasoline. And so there's three separate lawsuits now that have been filed to push the post office to adopt electric vehicles. They're you know, focusing on the thoroughness of kind of their environmental review. And, you know, for context on why this is important, I mean, in the U.S., our post office has a total fleet of roughly 200,000 vehicles. So Mm. as I understand it, the post office was planning, you know, in this first round to purchase about 20% of their order in electric. So it wasn't as though they weren't going to do any electric, Mm -hmm. but hopeful that this lawsuit will will help force the post office to to go fully electric. Yeah, I thought Biden just made a statement the other day about getting the government vehicles or some something on electric. I can't remember what what exactly the the quote was. Yeah, I I know he was disappointed to hear cuz the postmaster general can, you know, operate, you know, really with a fair amount of autonomy and so right. it seems like the environmental organizations and the states have now stepped up with these lawsuits and will hopefully force them to go electric. Yeah, makes sense. So, you know, when we talk about home energy efficiency, I think efficiency is something maybe we're we're all aware of to some degree, but solar panels, wind turbines, electric cars, you know, tend to get most of the attention when it comes to our transition away from from fossil fuels. And, you know, efficiency is is often overlooked. You know, it's sort of in that sense like a, a middle child. You know, they might do amazing things, but you know their accomplishments are, are overshadowed. Thomas, you you're a middle child. Is that is that ring ring true with you? Well, that makes sense. Uh, I, <laughs> I, I, I like to keep a low profile, Jason. Anyway, <laughs> no, but energy efficiency is a is a powerful workhorse. Uh, according to the National Resources Defense Council, over the past forty years, efficiency has done more to meet our growing energy needs than oil, gas, and nuclear combined. And mind you, at a fraction of the cost. To kick things off, we thought it might be interesting to talk a little bit about energy consumption before we look at the efficiency side. And Todd, I heard you have some some stats for us. I'm going to drop some knowledge. Uh, <laughs> and I'm pumped about consumption stats. So we looked at the consumption trends for the US and the EU, uh, which are both on a downward trend when you look at the energy consumption per capita. But in 2020, energy usage per person 
including electricity, heating, and transportation. So the U.S. was at 74,000 kilowatt hours. Japan was way lower at 37,000 kilowatt hours. And Germany was just a little bit higher at 40,000 kilowatt hours. So you can definitely see our numbers are are pretty terrible in comparison. So obviously we could make some major inroads if we did a little bit of work to kind of shore that up. Home energy consumption by source. So U.S. households, heating was 43%. Uh, so you know, pretty high. Air conditioning was only at eight uh, percent, which kind of surprised me actually. Yeah. Water heating was at nineteen percent. I was actually surprised to find that you know heating water was was almost double what it takes to to do air conditioning. Uh, lighting was at five percent, another was at twenty four. And the EU EU households, we don't have all the numbers here, but heating was was pretty significant at uh, you know sixty almost sixty four percent. And AC was really little to nothing at like 0.4%. Uh, and water heating, again, was, was a good chunk at 15. So, yeah, those are kind of the, kind of gives you an idea about what stuff, regular life in your house, you know, what that breaks down at as consumption. And I was curious, do either of you know what, what do you think is driving the difference, you know, in the air conditioning numbers between the US and the EU where we're at 8% and they're, really little to nothing yeah so i I can take a crack at that if you like todd so there's not one single factor there's quite a number of factors that drive it first and foremost often the building standards are are better in europe and the insulation requirements Um, the thermal mass of european structures is often significantly more because they use you know more internal brick in their buildings they've often got older buildings that have a far higher mass content so they're able to ride through those hot parts of the day um, with the coolness of that internal structure that it you know, cooled down overnight. And then you know, just the fact that because Europe has traditionally been more focused on heating in the winter, there are a lot of places that just don't have um, air conditioning installed yet, but that, that will change. So it's it is a pretty... Like how dare you? So it's kind of, <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of like the ocean and the beach comparison about how fast one will heat up and the other will heat up and they'll cool down you know the the ocean water will stay cooler in any case and the sand because of the less density or whatever right it will uh cools and heats up faster exactly yeah so if you've got a you know if your internal walls are let's say made of concrete or brick inside the house it it takes a, a a lot of energy to heat that up potentially but once it's at temperature it's far more likely to maintain a constant temperature. Um, Even though the outside air temperature might have heated quite rapidly during the day, you've got these relatively cool walls inside the house. The the other thing too is that, you know, often in Europe, houses are actually smaller. And not only that, but they have more conjoined housing. So they're sharing less surface area with the outer air um, during the day and the night. So you need less heating at night and maybe less cooling during the day. Cool. It, it is pretty interesting, though, to see the way those numbers shake out. I mean, I, I did know that heating was was the biggest chunk. But if you look at both the EU or the US, you look at either one, if you put water heating and space heating together, you're, you know, you're well over 60% in both cases. So those are clearly your, you know, your biggest targets in terms of, of reducing energy. 
Well, with that, let's start. Let's dig in a little further into space heating and and cooling. And I have to jump Thomas, back. Is you... it true that we take longer showers here? What? <laughs> Are you trying to call me out? Because I said on this <laughs> podcast before that that's one of the one of my one of my guilty pleasures is I take I take some long ass showers, man. Well, I put that in the notes because I thought it was it was sort of a comment, you know, like maybe U.S. likes to take longer showers, which. I think it's probably true. I don't know how much your showers, Todd, are driving those numbers, but I think if people are in like general, me, true. <laughs> I hide from my life in that shower. People don't bother me in there. Nobody calls me. I don't take calls. I lock. I make sure my family doesn't come in there. <laughs> That's my safe space, my quiet space. Hey, we, we we all need one. It's my therapy. So if we look at if we look at space heating and cooling. I think Thomas, as you already pointed out, I mean, there's there's a number of factors involved here. The first, you know, frankly, is is the size of the space, right? So if you're, you know, you're in a small apartment, it's going to require much less to to heat and cool that than it is a you know three thousand, four thousand square foot house. the The second factor that I kind of like to look at is is really the the insulation, right? So you're whether you're heating or you're cooling, the more insulated your space is, the more you're able to you know, slow that rate of, you know, heat or cool loss with with the out of doors. And then the third factor is of course, you know, what kind of device you're using to to heat and cool your spaces. And so with those sort of those three variables in mind, you know, if you're talking about size of space and, you know, you're not looking to to downsize to a tiny house, which, you know, by the way, I think tiny houses are great and and if you want to go that route, I encourage you. Um, but if you're not looking to change the size of your space, you do have the option of not heating and cooling the rooms that you're not using. You know, there are smart thermostats out there, and depending on your heating and cooling system, you can you can isolate which rooms you're focusing on. But you know, the, there's the old-fashioned way of just closing the door and the ducts on the rooms that you're you know not using, let's say in the winter or the summer. When it comes to insulation. Here in the U.S., homeowners save an average of about 15% on heating and cooling costs if they are insulated. And so, you know, for those of us who own older homes that maybe, you know, could use a little more insulation or have never seen any to begin with, you know, focus on trying to get somebody out to, you know, fill up those cavities with with insulation um, definitely makes a, a big difference. And then, you know, Again, the third thing is really the devices you're using. You know, when you're talking about cooling, you know, air conditioning and heat pumps are fairly similar. There isn't a huge difference between the f- most efficient air conditioner and the most efficient heat pump. But that changes when you look at the heating side of things. You know, if you look at a furnace, like a gas furnace, and compare that to a heat pump, heat pumps are on the order of you know, two to three times more efficient than than a furnace. Uh, there's there's just no comparison between you know a heat pump and a and a gas furnace. And while you know there is renewable ga- natural gas out there, I would argue that it's much better you know to be burning that to help back up renewables on the grid than it is to be used in you know heating our homes. So you're looking at you know putting in an air conditioner, looking at replacing that furnace. Would definitely encourage folks to to go out and and look at a heat pump setup. Thomas, you have thoughts on whether people should go ductless versus ducted? Yeah, look, I I think from a capital cost per 
kilowatt hour of heating or cooling perspective, you really can't beat you know mini split systems um, because they they're being, building being non-ducted. Yeah, yeah, non non-ducted systems. Um, they're they're often less invasive too because you're literally just drilling a hole through the wall to run the refrigerant gas through between the outdoor unit and the indoor unit. Um, and you're not having to run these ducts in the ceiling space um, where often the you know, the losses are into the ceiling space, either the heat losses in, in the wintertime or the you know, cooling losses in the summer. Um, the, the downside is that you've typically got to have more split systems throughout the house and the distribution of the heating and cooling might not be quite as good. Um, but you know, it, it doesn't require a great big ducting system to run through the roof. And because the ceiling-mounted systems are often sold in far less volume, they're, they're typically more expensive per kilowatt of installed heating or cooling capacity. Well, and I guess logistically too, I mean, as somebody who put a you know heat pump system, a ductless heat pump system on my last house you actually, it's amazing the amount of space you gain back from not having ducts to, you know, push air around. Yeah. There is something though that I think we've got to keep in mind and it goes back to your sort of close the room off comment a little bit earlier. Um, and, and that is the the moisture issue. If you're going from say a wood fire or a, a, a gas stove or something like that was in that was drawing air from inside the house, combusting it and putting it outside the house. You've got to remember, especially in cool climates, um, once you go and put a, a heat pump system in, it's not drawing air from outside into the house. So you will progressively get moisture buildup from you know, the occupants within the house as they breathe and sweat throughout the day. And you need to get that moisture out. And that's where often you've got to be thinking about um, either dehumidifiers to have those operating in your house um, or often better still in cool climates, uh, energy recovery or heat recovery ventilators, which extract uh, a portion of the air from the house. And as it sends it outside and replaces that air with incoming air, it preheats that incoming air with the heat off the outgoing air. So they'll, they'll typically operate at like 90 to 80 to 90% efficiency. So there's not a lot um, of energy lost through that system, but will keep the air quality inside the house much better and, and greatly reduce the chance of having any mold buildup as that moisture passes the walls or the window sills or the ceiling um, and deposits as it hits its dew point temperature. Yeah, I guess that is in, in you know, is one of the, the small downsides of having a really well insulated house and using a ductless heat pump is you just don't have that air moving around as much. So yeah, as, as you point out, you know, you just got to get some more air in from the outside. So the next bucket, although we talked about, you know, lighting is is a smaller portion of household energy use than, than it used to be, there's still big opportunities in terms of savings and efficiency. You know, you've got the three basic light bulbs that I think most folks are aware of. You've got the incandescent, which, you know, at this point is like the covered wagon of light bulbs. It's horribly inefficient. You've got the uh, compact fluorescent light bulb. We've all seen those. And then you have LEDs, which stands for, a, you know, light emitting diode. And when you, you look at not just the efficiency, but the other added benefits of the LED, there's really no contest. It may cost a little bit more upfront. And these days it isn't much more. But 
you save money in the long run because it lasts longer. It uses less energy. Thomas, keep me honest. I think it's about double the lifespan of a compact fluorescent. And it's about 15 to 20 times longer than, a, than an incandescent. And, and the other benefit, it doesn't, you know, compared to a fluorescent bulb, which has mercury, LEDs have no harsh chemicals that you have to worry about disposal of at, at end of life. And they can do dimmable, right? You can dim LEDs, can't you? Yeah, absolutely. But you've just got to make sure, because for the same type of fitting, there, there could be an option of a dimmable and a non-dimmable solution. The dimmable one might be a few dollars more expensive. Yeah, and I think, you know, the other reality is from those of us who've kind of followed the evolution of the, the LED light bulb is they've come a, a long way in terms of not only getting cheaper, but you can now, you know, get an LED bulb, any sort of, you know, flavor of warmth in terms of light, you know, you can get them in different shapes and sizes, different colors. That's really important. I got to have my mood lighting. I got to have it demo. I'm kind of like our, yeah, I'm like a Rico Suave type, you know, I got to <laughs> just ask my wife, man. I know how to, <laughs> how to get that mood lighting going in here. Oh boy. This, this went off the rails fast. <laughs> So, well, the good news that just kind of came out in the U.S. is that Biden, uh, the Biden administration, is helping to accelerate the phase out of incandescent light bulbs altogether. So, I think by mid twenty twenty three, retailers can no longer sell incandescent bulbs. And you know, one of the talking points they touted was that the in the U.S. you'd be looking at about three billion dollars a year in savings on utility bills, which That's awesome. is pretty nuts. That's real money. That is real yeah, money. Yeah, I mean, the incandescents are terrible. I mean, compared to an efficient LED, they're typically using almost 10 times more electricity. Diabolical. Well, we talked earlier about hot showers, so also wanted to touch upon uh, water heating. And Thomas, I think you're probably the most qualified to, to dig into water heating for us. But for those who you know have an older setup, let's say a you know, an old gas water heater or maybe an old electric that has like a resistive element, you know, what are, what are folks' options in terms of becoming more efficient? Yeah. Well, if we, if we roll the clock back 15, 10, 15 years or more, um, the, the, the only real option back then was a, a solar hot water system, right? So you'd still need the, the gas or the resistive electric backup for you know, when there was cloud cover. And that was a great solution back then. Um, and it would knock a, a fair bit off your electricity or gas bill for the year. But now more commonly, the best solution is to use a, a heat pump, the same as we discussed before for um, space heating, but it is literally just heating the water. And the, the most efficient one on the market today uh, use carbon dioxide as a refrigerant gas. And for every kilowatt hour of electricity they use, they'll typically extract between four and five times that amount of energy from the ambient air and pump that into your hot water. The, the beauty about moving to that and moving away from solar hot water systems is that it doesn't matter whether it's an overcast day or a sunny day, they'll still produce the same amount of heat uh, just as efficiently. Um, so you see a substantial improvement in uh, energy savings over the winter with them. With carbon dioxide as a refrigerant gas, um, they're also able to operate very efficiently down to extremely low temperatures. And 
Yeah, I, they're a great solution, but the biggest downside to them is that doing an upgrade, it, it can be quite a significant amount of money you need to shell out. If it's something where you are going to spend the money to upgrade your existing system anyway or have to replace it because it's reached end of life or it's a new build, then it, it's a substantially smaller step up to go to these uh, CO2 refrigerant systems. Yeah, and that's a good point. We, we talked about, for those who tuned into our last episode, you know, refrigerants are old refrigerants, you know, we're called HFCs, are super potent greenhouse gases. And so, you know, whether you're talking about purchasing a heat pump, a refrigerator, you know, an, an air conditioner for your window, it's critical we're moving to technologies that, that no longer use HFCs and use things, natural refrigerants like carbon dioxide or, you know, even fossil fuels like isobutane. Um, is, is another good option. So it sounds like the U.S. in some ways kind of missed the solar water heater window. Because I, I, I've read some articles about, you know, like during the oil embargo crisis, you know, I think it was 79, solar water heaters in Israel, for instance, like took off. Like I think they, they have like 85% of homes. And it sounds like now you're probably better off spending your money and spending your your space on your roof, right? To just have regular photovoltaic, just pumping electricity yeah. into your house and having a, a heat pump water heater unit in your basement, you're probably going to be much better off. Yeah. And as you point out, I mean, if you go and put solar PV on your roof that will then be running your heat pump hot water system, you can always export that solar to the grid when you don't need it. Nobody mm. wants to buy your hot water. There's no mechanism right. to trade that today, but you can trade electricity. That makes sense. Well, and I think playing slightly devil's advocate for the folks who may have a, a solar water heater is there are places where the clouds aren't as much of a problem, you know, if you're in a spot like Hawaii or in a place certainly like yeah. Israel. Arizona. And Arizona, yeah, where where you reliably have that, that sunshine and thus, you know, not as much of an issue. But I think, Thomas, you know, coming back to your point, I think it's if folks have yet to try to, you know, make the jump to make their water heating a lot more efficient that they really ought to consider just going the route of a heat pump water heating system versus, you know, installing a solar water heating system in conjunction with a, an electric one to back it up. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's not my intent to offend, offend anyone that uh, does have a, a solar system because they were a great solution back years ago because that's all, all we had really. Right. Um, but now there are, for most people, there are a better solution. And, and that, that is going with a, a heat pump hot water system, but making sure that it's an efficient one that uses carbon dioxide as a, as a refrigerant gas. Yeah, because I don't remember, like in Home Depot now, you can walk in there and, and buy a heat pump water heater, you know, right then, right there. I don't even know when those started to become kind of widely available. Yeah, about 10 years ago, there were quite a few that came out with uh, hydrofluorocarbons as refrigerant gases, but they didn't have nearly the efficiency of the ones with carbon dioxide today. And at end of life, if that refrigerant gas leaks into the atmosphere, which unfortunately often does, it's terrible. It's an absolute environmental disaster. Indeed. You know, I think the final bucket worth calling out when it comes to home energy efficiency is just ensuring that, 
you know, whenever you're looking to purchase a new appliance, you're trying to find one that's among the most efficient available. And when you're here in the U.S., the easiest way to, to do that is to head over to the Energy Star website. They have a, a great product buying guide. And whether you're looking for a refrigerator or dryer, you can you know select the criteria you're looking for. And they also have an option to filter based on what they call Energy Star Most Efficient. And as long as you click on that box, you can ensure that whatever appliance you end up buying is going to be among the best that are out there. And while you're on their website, they also have a lot of great energy efficiency tips and you know dig into topics well beyond what we've had time to, to cover here today. And I think another thing to keep in mind too on that, Jason, is that um, in, in many jurisdictions, there's the ability to get tax rebates and so forth for hot water heaters. In fact, um, heat pump hot water heating in Australia is one of the few things that qualifies for government efficiency rebates. Um, so the STC is payable on that and that will rebate you about $1,100 on the cost of a system. Yeah. I mean, that's a great point across the board, right? Depending on obviously where you live, you can get rebates for buying in a more efficient appliance, whether that's a refrigerator or a washer and dryer. You can get it certainly for you know more expensive items like moving to a heat pump. And so I think that that leads to you know the question of of what can each of us do, and I think the best place to start if you're you know a homeowner, whether you own a you know a condo or a, or a house or what have you, is look into whether you can you can get a, a home energy audit or assessment. Uh, at least here in the U.S., there are many utilities that will offer them for free. So somebody comes out to your house and you know has the training to be able to walk through and and look at your home and then be able to hand over a report that that lets you know what are those what's that low hanging fruit what are those things that are going to help you you know save the most energy up front and then you sort of have a a laundry list that you can you know work through over time to to make your home more and more efficient if you rent thomas i thought you might have some thoughts here but obviously different because you're not able to you know let's say open up the walls and put in insulation but I think you had some suggestions for for folks who might be renting. Yeah, and that's not to say that you can't put that insulation in. You just need to go and ask your landlord. And often, you know, if if you can reduce the electricity consumption on a house, it, it increases the chance of a land landlord retaining a tenant. So they may may well be open to it to do like pump infill wall insulation or um, ceiling insulation for you. But there are other things that you could do that are often not particularly costly. Like I, I found you can get really inexpensive cellular blinds from IKEA and they are better than installing double glazed windows in a house. They're easy to fit yourself. And um, you know, the other option is changing out your light bulbs to take out if there are incandescents in that rental property, take them out, plop in at LED and I mean, at the end of the day, I guess you can always take your LEDs with you if you move to another another apartment somewhere else. <laughs> you know, I really dig this whole topic because I feel like for any listener, there's a lot of room here where people could make improvements and it's things that people can control and stuff that probably is just naturally going to occur. You're going to have to buy appliances at some point. You're going to have to replace light bulbs. Shoot, even without an energy audit, if you probably just watched 
some of your your bills if you did some of these things and you just kind of watched your energy usage or your bills which i don't cuz my wife pays them cuz i'm terrible at standard life task but <laughs> if you <laughs> if you if you wanted to make an effort you know you could really see a huge impact and it would be a, a personal thing that that you can do and set an example and and tell other people about that you know and kind of share that knowledge and and get people pumped up about doing it themselves yeah and you know at climate optimists i think we you know we're believers in 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 advocacy and you know talking to your government and pushing them because we need system change you know not just individual change the beauty with all these home energy improvements is you can go talk to your friends about it talk to your family about it and then you're not just having the impact on the space that you live in but you're impacting others decision making and and that's really where you start to see the the multiplicative benefit. Well, I think that's a wrap for this week. Thanks everyone as usual for for tuning in. Come back uh, next week for more climate solutions, reasons for hope, and ways each of us can make a difference. Climate Optimist is made possible by Climate Stewards Collective. You can find us on the web at climateoptimist.co. And don't forget to follow us on social at Climate Optimist Podcast.